guys, and welcome to this episode of How to Wow, starring the unbelievably talented Lucy Preble. Lucy is an award-winning, internationally renowned playwright and writer of television smashes such as Succession and I Hate Susie. Suffice to say, she's very good at her job. And this super special episode is brought to you in association with our friends at Athletic Greens. Every morning, Tash, my wife, and I go scoop da loop with one heap scoopful of this all-round nutritional insurance, which is made up of no less than 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood, scientifically researched and blended together to support and improve energy, recovery, immunity, and digestion. Deep seaweed green, like nature itself. This eye candy concoction takes just a few seconds, like no more than five or six okay ten tops to prepare and taste absolutely gorgeous and so here's how you can get yours simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow and join health experts athletes and health conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day again simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow okay and don't forget slash how to wow because this will entitle you to the special deal athletic greens have given how to wow listeners a free year's supply of vitamin d and five travel free packs today to take with you on the go once again athletic Greens.com slash don't forget how to wow. Okay, and now cue the conversation. Lucy, the last time I saw you, you were drunk and I was sober. <laughs> yes, I'm here to apologize. No, don't do that. But let's reflect on on, on why that was mm. and what had happened the pre in the preceding 72 hours. Sure. Well, so last time we spoke, I came in with Billy Piper, yep. my best friend, your ex-wife. I know her. And we, um, we'd we basically spent the last 24 hours celebrating um, a show that we'd done together that could come out, I Hate Susie, that Billy stars in and I'd written and we created together. And we basically had had a good reception for it that we weren't totally expecting. And so Billy said, let's go for lunch. Lunch turned into a few more drinks, turned into dinner, turned into many more drinks, turned into, oh, my God, we have to be on the radio with Chris. And that's basically what happened. And the result of this was a killer interview. It was so good. It was a really, really long conversation. It was like an hour and a half or something. And well, then somebody else pitched up, didn't they? And you stuck around. Who was that? I can't remember. Catelyn Moran came. Oh, Catelyn came. Of course she did. Which was a really good combination, actually, because she had just written this book about being more than a woman, I think it's called, and, yeah. which I'm listening to, actually, on audiobook, which is good. And, um, yeah, um, and so it, it sort of worked with the themes of our show, which were a lot about sort of, you know, being in your 30s, going into your 40s as a woman. So it was... Yeah, it was lovely. I mean, it was sort of, it was awful as well. It was like really painful. I kept thinking I was going to be sick, but it was also great. So on reflection now from from your bender mm. um, with Bills, uh, so, you know, a Sheryl Crow would have sung, what was it, say, the, what is she saying about the afterglow in the morning? What she said, oh, the, a beer buzz early in the morning is what she talks about. Okay. You had that still going on. And I was hoping and praying and wishing, um, mostly for, for my own nostalgia, but also because I thought it'd be a right laugh that you two would then crack on and go out for lunch. Please tell me that happen no it didn't we were both way too minging for that no it didn't but um yeah in olden days we might have done but i think we're just in both olden getting a bit days? old in olden <laughs> days like before like now i just can't do it as much like it takes it out me for a week rather than a day you know okay wait till you get to 54 
<laughs> right, okay, I'm sure. to look forward to. Yeah, hooray. <laughs> right, so it was pretty pretty um, celebratory um, that morning, that day and that week. And um, we're not that far, you know, after that now. Um, it's been a few weeks. It's still getting rave reviews. It's still top of the picks, I Hate Susie. What is the atmosphere around it like now? What has happened with, with, with a view to, to uh, future seasons going forward? Just tell us about, A, the personal emotions surrounding it as we sit here today, and then the professional ones. Yeah, well, I feel quite proud of it, which is an unusual feeling for me. Um, I am often hypercritical of my own stuff and, uh, you know, I, I find it quite difficult to watch. But this is a show, and partly because of Billy, actually, that I I feel like achieved something slightly new for me. I think it's quite emotionally raw and affecting and that's that's an area that I've always slightly shied away from before a bit I think in my work and I so I'm quite proud they managed to achieve that I think it moved some people and I was just really surprised because I thought it was a weirder show than that I thought some people would love it but I thought most people would be like what is this and the reaction has been that a lot of people have felt like they've got it and that I don't know that was a lovely feeling what's weird though is this is the first time I've ever done anything that's been consumed like that. So normally I, I, I write for theatre often and a play's on for maybe six, eight weeks. It can be longer if it's a success. So you've got people constantly going, it's on, you know, it, it feels like it's alive for quite a long time. And and even, you know, a TV show like Succession, which is another show I work on, you tend to go out weekly on HBO, so it stays alive as a season. I think what's really new about this is that a lot of people who watched it watched it in a real binge. So they watched it almost over a weekend or a week. And that is in some ways really nice and flattering because you're like, oh, they really wanted it. But it's a very, very strange thing when you spend years and years and years working on something and then boom, it's like downed like a shot. And suddenly you have this feeling of, oh, God, I, I, that's, that, that was years and years of my life and now it's just like gone and people are like, what's next, what's next, what's next? Which is, which is a feeling, I suppose, that's quite contemporary, like we all have now. We're all like, you know, scroll, 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 next thing. And, and, and so it's sort of being fed into that machine. But it does feel different in that way. It's a bit odd. That's very filmic, though, isn't it? Because that's what happens with people who make films. They work mm. on them for years, and they're just 90 minutes. They come out one weekend, and it, it, that really is boom or bust, which we were talking about before. So, it, And it's strange for me to hear that, not, but then not at all once you explain it, because I'm thinking, well, you could write a movie in your sleep if you wanted to. Um, I wish. But it's a different discipline and a different world. Yeah. Also, I think it's surprising how long it does take to write things, because... My family are a bit like that. My family you know, don't come from, don't work in the arts or anything. And they're always like, what do you mean you're still writing that same thing? Like, surely only, ten, you know, it's like, if it's 90 pages long, surely you can do 10 pages a day. You got it done in 10, in like this. And it's, that's not crazy. Like, that sort of makes sense. But it doesn't work like that. You know, as you know, you sort of have to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite constantly and reshape. But it, that is a really strange thing about writing. I, I feel like I should produce more because it's it's it feels like you should be able to do it quicker but if you actually look at like the IMDb entries of write of writers of films that you love it's very rare that there's m many films on there and certainly very rare that there are any really great films lots of really great films on there you often find that even the greatest screenwriters you could name maybe two three films that they're done i mean obviously you know not not woody allen or you know people like that but 
yeah, it's a it's an odd profession for that. It takes a really, really, really long time to get something made. So the pressure on it when it happens feels quite immense. So I'm really glad that I Hate Susie did, I don't know, get some attention and some recognition just from people that, well, people that I know anyway. And I felt very proud of that because, it yeah, it took ages. But it's the optics of it all, isn't it? Because, you know, we were watching Elliot Kachowi at the um, London Marathon at the weekend, you know, and he's the best marathon runner there's ever been, male marathon runner there's ever been, um, ever in the, the history of the human species. But he, he only runs two competitive marathons a year. Whereas, you know, um, a sprinter, for example, uh, Usain Bolt, would run several hundred metres a weekend. And so if you look at it like that, it happens in all yeah. walks of life. That's interesting. And I suppose we do sometimes talk about ourselves, don't we, as like I'm a bit of a marathon runner or I'm a bit of a split as a personality. Tortoise or the hare. Yeah, I mean, I am. There is no doubt about which one I am. I am <laughs> such a tortoise. I am. The tortoise always wins. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm saying, Chris. That's what I'm saying. That's a winner. What are you? Which are you though? Because you don't. I don't know. I can't I tell. I'm caught between um, rock and a hard place because the thing about radio is it's the most, especially, and it's been proven under COVID. Um, you know, it's the it's the easiest thing to do. Not always well, but it is definitely the easiest thing to do out of all the media, because you need a microphone and a person, and in many ways. That's why podcasts are, are sort of this sort of new sort of uh, wild west, if you like, because you don't need anyone to do it. You don't need a license. You mm. don't need a sponsor. You don't need um, a, a, a brand uh, license. You don't need a broadcast license because you, as long as you, you, you're, you're you, it's like that's like being a writer. It's very similar to being a writer. I was thinking about that earlier because I think one of the reasons I hate Susie's worked as much well in, in the way that it has is I did write it for Billy, in a way. And I mean for Billy, as in, like, for her as an actress, but also for my friend. And I was thinking of her when I was writing it. I was thinking, oh, this will make Billy laugh. Or, like, oh, I, you know, I wouldn't say this to anyone else, but I would say it to Billy. And I think I remember someone giving me a piece, a piece of advice ages ago when I was doing a radio interview where they said, just talk like you're talking to one person. Don't think about loads and loads of people because the best radio presenters are sort of almost talking to one person in their head. Well, you know, and, and, and I think the same is sort of true for writing in that way. That's how they're all so similar is that things are better in a way when you are thinking about one person or being quite specific rather than trying to talk to everyone or please everyone. And so in a way, I think they're sort of similar that way. Yeah, we talked to Ian Rankin about this a couple of days ago. Uh, again, because because he writes his books because he is who he is now, you know, 26 Rebus novels and counting, and they're all fucking amazing, you know, plus the other stuff that he does anyhow. You know, and he goes away, he goes, he's got a writer's shed in the Highlands of Scotland uh, where there's no Wi-Fi apart from, guess where, at the pub, which is hilarious. <laughs> um, his wife buys him, you know, uh, multi-packs of his favourite chocolate, but it just sounds like the most idyllic life. Mm. And of course, he writes for himself or writes for his characters or his characters ask him to write for them and then he delivers his book you know and that that's sort of i suppose the purest form and you came close to that by when you were writing i hate susie because of how you just described it yeah maybe it's, yeah because it was sort of for somebody that i knew and loved and trusted but it's funny that isn't it? i i i shy away from novels or prose or anything like that 
because you're right there is something about it being the purest form but also it's very lonely I imagine you know when I'm writing I'm always looking forward to that point where some more people get involved it's a little bit like planning a party and you're like oh wait I can't wait till the party starts particularly with theatre because when you get into a rehearsal room and everyone's in the same room it's a really really lovely feeling and there's a little bit of it me that's like that's the reward for all of this quite lonely hard work and the idea that you do all of that and then you just have a book and then it just disappears out into the world and you never and then you have to start again I find so depressing as an idea well I mean you could you could describe writing as either books that is uh, either perfectionism or or control freakery and I think that um, they're both the same they're interchangeable depending on whose perspective um, you're looking from and also how much you like the person it's about because if you like them it's they're a perfectionist and if you dislike them they're a control freak it's the same kind of thing yeah and um, (laughs) and we were talking to uh, uh, Rupert Everett about his new book which is about the making of a film the happy prince his oscar wilde film which is his life's work and um and he's a brilliant writer and speaking to what you just said you know he i said you've got to write more because he's a great actor he's an amazing raconteur he's a fantastic human being but i think the thing he's best at is writing and i said why don't you write he's written six books and they're all they are amazing his books they're very wild-esque themselves and he says chris i find it so hard and 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 speaking to what you're saying there about about you know you find maybe the the thought of writing a novel so lonely is no i could probably do it i just i just prefer not to do it i prefer to do (laughs) it this way and i say that to my agent i just prefer not to and it's like being a solo artist or being in a band you might get more money if you're a solo artist but you might drive yourself potty if 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 you're on your own or it might go the other way you you know rod stewart was in a band for ages and then it ended up, you know, being, you know, uh, most renowned for being a solo artist. He was in the faces, didn't get any better than that. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't for him in the end, you know? Yeah. But- and it's your life. Yeah. You get to choose how you spend it a little bit. As I get older, I'm really realizing that a bit more. That So, for example, I. I continue to do and love to do Succession, the HBO show, which I write on a little bit. And it's run by Jesse Armstrong and there's, and there's quite a few of other writers involved. But it's really Jesse's show. But it's a show that not only do I love it, but I love spending time with those people. And also when, when you write a show like that, you go into a writer's room every day for a period of time to come up with it, you know, to write all the ideas on the wall and you're all chatting and you're all trying to make each other laugh and think, wouldn't it be funny if this happened? Wouldn't it be funny if that happened? And actually the way to, a way to spend four, five, six hours in a day doing that is if the people are nice, it's really lovely. And it's very structured as well. It's like I go to a place, you know, I I talk to these people, we try and come up with stuff and we try and make each other laugh and then we leave. And that's actually quite a healthy way to live as compared to the more solitary writing, which I did with like I Hate Susie or I do with my plays. And so there's a part of me now that's going... I should be making decisions that take into account what's healthy and fun and good for me rather than going, you know, actually I should only work on stuff that I'm completely in control of and that really, really is my stuff and my show because that's where I want to be in my career or whatever because actually that's not how I want to live my life every day. And so it doesn't matter if there's more, I don't know, money or acclaim in that direction. Um, Not that there is necessarily, but... (laughs) You know, it's like, you know, I'm not, yeah, I'm not saying, you know, this poor, poor show succession that nobody watches. I'm just saying, like, well, I'm, I'm just saying that that is a very fortunate position to be in. And also, it, it's taught me a bit about how to make decisions, which is slightly go towards where you feel 
happy and comfortable and joyous, which I didn't always do, actually, to be honest. Just move the microphone a little bit close to your mic. Sorry. No, no, just you move it so you're comfortable. So you can move it. Just move, move the it. mic. Manhandle it. Man Hello. Handle it. There you go. Uh, by the way, it sounds great anyway. You precursed that whole monologue there with as I get older, mm. right? You are aware you've always been getting older. <laughs> yeah. I think the difference is I used to really want it. So when I was a kid, I was one of these kids, and it's something I share with Billy we've talked about before, is I just wanted to be a grown-up as quickly as possible. I had no interest in childhood. I found it really, like, um, exasperating that I was sort of sat there with all the adults able to do whatever they wanted all the time, and I was kind of, you know, just going, I can't wait till I can do what I want, and I don't have to live in this sort of very um, stupid, immature, <laughs> vulnerable place. <laughs> And so for quite a long time, I was like, yes, you know, I'm 16, I can do these things. I'm 18, I can do these things. I'm 21, I can do these things. And that carries on for quite a while. And then there's sort of a weird kind of like train stopping reverse where you sort of go, start to lean back and go, oh, I'm not, I'd be happy to stop now. And I don't mean that in, I don't mean it in a particular like vanity way or, oh, my knees, although there is a bit of that. I mean, more like... (laughs) The existential thing kicks in a little bit where you start to sense very soon there'll be a little bit more behind you than ahead of you. Yeah, that's all it is. It's yeah. that, that's it. It's so simple, isn't it? I could, we could, we could, let's do a little rainbow picture. Okay, so we do a little, a little rainbow picture. And it's just simply, it's just getting there, isn't it? It's getting to the middle. <laughs> Steven Spielberg taught us all we need to know. You know yeah. As a young man, he, he, he wrote Close Encounters and E.T. And as an older guy, he, he does biopics about the Second World War. And, that, and that's, what, that's what happens, you know? It's so funny. You know, you look, the further away the finish line is, the, the, the more you can't wait for it to come closer. And then when it comes too close, you, you want to look back and see how far away the start line mm. is. And it's, it, that's it. And it's not about getting older. Well, I suppose it is. It's about, it's, it's not, it's about, about getting further along the path of age, which is different to getting older. Yeah. And also, it's funny what you're saying about Spielberg. Like, I've been thinking a bit about as you as as you age, you know, what, what happens to the work, what happens to the quality of the work. So whether you're a, you know, presenter, writer, actor, director like him. And it's funny, I started to wonder if when people have talked about like, oh, they get, you know, people, they, they sort of lose it as they get older, you know, directors and writers, they often talk about that with and. I want, I've started to wonder if actually you just start to need it less, which is actually a positive thing. Like, I think when I started out writing, a lot of that was about me trying to process stuff that I couldn't say in my life. I couldn't sort of, for, what, for, for various different reasons, I found it difficult to express. And, and now, as I said, like, over time, if, if you're going in the right direction as a person yourself and you start to go, oh, yeah, I am a, I am a bit of a dick in this way or oh I've I've messed up in this other way and you try and change I actually find my reasons for writing are quite different they're much less um uh, tortured or or weird and I'm more likely to do a gig a job to sort of go oh that might be fun and interesting rather than oh this is the most important thing they'll ever be and I've got to express myself in it so I sometimes wonder like if another way of looking at it is as you get older your 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 work can become less uh, original, but that's because you're becoming happier. Well, you think it's less original because you thought it was so original in the first place, but that's about the exuberance of youth, isn't it? Yeah, it probably is, yeah. 
Yeah, and also when you're young, you don't know all the other stuff that's already been done. So you're like, this is the first time anyone's ever done this. And it's not, you know, as you get older, you've watched this stuff. And you're, oh, yeah, it's all well, been done I'm before. Not, I'm not sure. It has. I don't think it has. I think, you know, I think we're in the golden age of telly. You're very much part of that. You're at the heart of that. How exciting is that? We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment or two. Uh, but um, let's talk about the fact that you befriended Billy and you because you because this show is so I hate Susie is is so and it is a tour de force and maybe only two pals could have come up with it because there's that special thing there's that tacit um well it's not tacit to you two but it's tacit to the rest of the world you know what you are prepared to say to each other think with each other out loud then write down and then maybe disguise a little bit for the sake of or maybe yourselves maybe the audience you know maybe things don't have to be as brash as otherwise they could be maybe the lighter things land the more um people are open to hearing them and therefore the 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 more widespread the message might get heard in the end anyway um but you two met on i, I always call it belle de jour because i was around at the time but, yeah but it's not belle de jour is it no the book was called and the blog was called belle de jour yeah. it was a woman who was writing about sex work um in uh gosh i can't remember when it was now it must have been like the early 2000s um and i was really into the blog Actually, I was just, you know, I read a lot of blogs um, at the time. I was quite into the internet and just, you know, re reading about other people's experiences and ended up talking to a television company about making it into a TV show. And eventually down the line, uh, we met with Billy potentially to be attached to it. And that was the first time we ever met. And the show itself was a little bit of a nightmare to some extent because... <clears throat> You know, there's things about it that worked well. And also, the, the fundamentally, what we wanted it to be in the first place was quite a, a new, fresh, interesting take on escorting, particularly, that echelon of sex work, and there hadn't been very much about it. But we were both quite young, and to be honest, television just sort of ate us up a little bit. And looking back at it now, I realise I didn't really understand what, my job was on that or what well and I wasn't quite allowed to do my job fully now I view my job as giving the television company and the producers a really good show that they want and the reason they've hired me is because they believe erroneously or not that I have the capacity to do that so there are decisions that get made along the way where sometimes you have to fight quite hard to sort of tell the people who are your bosses or are paying you essentially that no, that isn't the right way to go. And you have to really back yourself in those moments. And it's quite scary. And you can only really do it when you have a certain level of experience towards it. Anyway, I didn't have any of that back then. And it, it all got a little bit taken over with the idea of it's 23 minutes because it was half hours with ad breaks, which was not what it was originally intended to be. And can we make it as, as sort of like pretty and non-offensive as possible? Now... Having said that, Billy's an amazing performer and I think there was some interesting stuff in it. But it was a bit of an odd show and I ended up only working on it for the first season and then halfway through the second series. But the thing that came out of it that was brilliant was my friendship with Billy, who, as you might be able to attest to, is sort of one of the finest people I know. She's fantastic and she's inspiring and she you know, continues to be my best friend every day and I love her very, very much. And she she was brave enough at the end of that show, which wasn't a completely smooth experience, to come up to me and say, can we be proper friends? And I remember in my slightly blithe, defended way, I said, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. And she just looked me straight in the eye and she said, no, I mean it. And I knew exactly what she meant. And I said, yes, please, can we? And ever since then, yeah. 
She's special, isn't she? She's very, very special. Yes, she is. Um, yeah. She's so modest. She's so annoyingly modest. Bill. Yeah, she is. And she's, uh, yeah, she's, she's, uh, She's also very brave, which I really, really like. And, you know, that can have downsides. I think one reason our friendship really works is I'm... Sometimes Billy needs a tiny bit of me going, hang on, is this really the best idea? Let's think it through. And I think sometimes I need someone just to go push me a little bit off the cliff and go, come on, it's going to be fine, it's going to be fine. And in the right... In the, at the right times, those things are actually really good for each other, both creatively and personally. No, it's fun. I mean, you couldn't wish for a better a, a better sparring partner. Yeah. And yeah. this has to carry on, doesn't it? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, what's really lovely and interesting about television at the moment is the dynamics of it are changing a little bit because people want TV. There's so many providers out there. So Billy and I can are in a position of going, well, what do we want to do next? Um, or at least I hope we are. You never quite know. And we are, we only really want to do stuff if we think it's going to be really good. Mm. Rather than maybe going, oh, gosh, someone's offering us work. You know, we have, to, we have to respond and we have to do it because you never know what's coming around the corner. And that's something Billy taught me as well, which is to choose, choose carefully and believe that something else will come along, that you don't just have to panic and grab whatever's coming your way. So... You know, if it comes to a season two of Susie, which we're having conversations about, we want it to be as good as season one, if not better. And we want the idea of it to be incredibly strong. And we're not going to do anything unless it is. And equally, what's great is that we're not owned by a concept. Like Billy and I could decide to go off and do a musical or a movie if that's what we wanted to do. And that's lovely because we have that relationship with each other and she might want to play something completely different and I might want to write something completely different. So really it's the friendship that prevails and the show is, um, you know, something that has come out of that. I mean, that's just gold, isn't it? That's gold as a, as an artist, as a mate, you know, as a woman, as a person, uh, to have that sort of mothership of, it's sort of indestructibility, if you like. Um, not that you're, impregnable impregnable or infallible it's just the fact that your your friendship is more important than anything else that anybody could ask you to do yeah and And that's what he said to the producers at the beginning was that's going to be like a really big part of how do we make sure we protect that and don't get me wrong we annoy the hell out of each other as well like that's part of it and we've we've had arguments and you know there are things i i do that i know drive billy crazy and you know i'm sure there's some vice versa to that but um there's yeah, so it's not sort of all all perfect. But, yeah, there's no doubt that the friendship is more important than anything else, and that's a really good place to start from. It's also a little bit unhealthy. I mean, just to, you know, add some, like, uh, friction and fun to it. There is also, we laugh about it all the time. You know, I'm sort of, I'm writing things down for my friend to do, you know, in order to sort of emotionally express some stuff. Like, that, you know, sometimes the lines get a little bit blurred between us. And what it is that we're doing, and that's kind of a bit odd and emotionally strange. But then we just then we just investigate the lines blurring, you know, in in the work. And so, 
maybe, hopefully it won't ever end. But, you know, if you were in a band together, you'd be doing exactly the same thing. That's right. I mean, and there's a long history of all that, isn't there? And, and even people in bands are in relationships with each other in some way, aren't they? They're best friends. Well, bring or... on Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> there you or go. Or... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you like? Oh, my God, yeah. And then, and exactly. And then some of the great, you know, that what's the, what's that great ABBA song about their own divorce um, or breakup? Is it The Winner Takes It All? The Winner Takes It All, yeah. I mean, that's just absolutely heartbreaking. It is. Yeah. It is. So, yeah. So when Billy and I do eventually fall out, there'll be a, a great movie about it. Well, that's never going to happen. Uh, that's for sure. Um, so, I Hate Susie, uh, it's, not, it's been said, you've said in interviews, you both said, you know, it's, not a, it's not biographical where Billy's concerned, but you have mentioned the names of other people that you've drawn from. Was it entirely, I mean, you know, Billy's lived much of the life that's, that's documented and dramatised within I Hate Susie, but other names have been mentioned instead of hers. Um, whether that's the case or not the case, I don't think it really matters. Um, but was it helpful not to, not to say, look, this, this is... This is what basically what happened to my best mate, and we're just we're just throwing some other things in there to put you off the scent. <laughs> yeah, and well, actually, what's hard about that is I think it devalues the work that's gone into the show, which I think is much subtler than that. I would argue that I've written a show about big themes like fame, womanhood. Um, technology, family, deception. And I've sort of sprinkled recognisable things into it or over it in a way of slightly cheekily going, look, you know what I'm talking about here. But also actually on a, on a technical level, you're trying to get the audience in as quickly as possible. And you're also trying to tell the story as quickly as possible. If you think of most pilots of shows that you see, it's like, okay, and then we meet, we, oh, we're meeting our protagonist and then we're meeting this other person who's got what we call a B story that goes through it. And then you're meeting the other ensemble characters who all you're all introduced to with basically subtle exposition about who they are and what they represent. And I sort of wanted to cheat that and just go much faster in the way that when you're online now, you just experience everything much faster and more intensely and immediately. And a way of doing that is to sort of use stuff where you go, listen, this is Billy Piper playing a character at a convention. You know what that's like. You know what that is. Um, we're here. Let's, let, let, let's, let's tell the story really, really quickly because everyone understands what you're referencing. So it's also just a way of the audience arriving at something with a load of backstory already told. Yeah. Now, that's cheating to some extent, but it was, you know, a choice to cheat. And I think it we pulled it off. So I, I just, I think anyone who's actually watched the show will hopefully understand that it's not one of those, this is, a, this is like a, this is a sort of cheap, um, version of this person's life with a few names changed because I don't think it reads like that. Might be wrong. No, I think you're right. And what, what's really exciting is the fact that you know each episode is under the banner of an emotion. Mm. Um, and we talked about this before. You know, here, here, let's go for the next raft of emotions. But of course, it wouldn't have to. It doesn't have to be Susie. You could be in New York with a lawyer. Or I mean, that that'd be really exciting, wouldn't it? So, yeah. so, so actually, the theme, the narrative becomes the the franchise, but not the character. 
yeah, potentially that is that has also been something that we've discussed. Like, um, who might she be next? That's exactly, da, da, da. exactly. And also, she's a really great actress. So, because um, part and part of what I wanted to write with I Hate Susie was to show everyone ever what she can do. Because I know that. Um, and I also, I also think it's sometimes a little bit unfair because as a writer, I've smuggled a lot of my own neuroses and stuff into that show. And everyone's always sort of going like, oh, Billy, and oh, it must be, you know, this is a version of Billy's this, that or the other. And and, and there's a part of me that's like, feels a little bit naughty that I've kind of, I've expressed my weird stuff and everyone assumes it's Billy's. And I sort of want to apologise to her and go, I know that it was me, not you, <laughs> that thought that or did that. So so basically, she's Seinfeld and you're Larry David. <laughs> Oh, my God, that is a great comparison. Yeah, because I am such a miserable bitch in comparison. Like, No, you're not. No, I am. Like, this is all a complete front. Like, I swear. I no, ask so Billy. not a miserable bitch. Do you, you know those stories about when they would they would recommission Seinfeld and Larry David's, like, would just put his head on the desk and go, like, oh, God, we have to do more. 22 a year. Yeah, 22 a year. And Jerry would be like, this is great. That's very, very I similar. another airfield. It's <laughs> a very similar dynamic, exactly. So Jerry's just like, yeah. Yeah, exactly, like 12 more classic cars while Larry David's just like, <laughs> I just want to sit at home and do nothing. And I'm a little bit like that. I, 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 um, the, the amount of time it takes me to find the bad side of a really good piece of news is very short. And, and that's one, and that's a thing that, you know, Billy gets, is annoyed by, and, and, and rightly so, that, you know, I, to feel positivity, I have to get a lot of it. And, so, you know, that is also why I think I try very, very hard to do things that people like, you know, pr probably personally as well as professionally, because I'm like, I need to, I need to f get a lot of this to feel it. James Corden and his best mate went out to America and smashed it and are still smashing it. Basically, same setup as you and Bill. Could you, could that, could that ever happen? <laughs> what? That makes Billy James Corden, right? In that. Yeah, of course. It doesn't matter, by the way. <laughs> no, I don't mean uh, from a late night talk show point of view, but I, I would love to see, talking about Seinfeld and Larry David, you and Bill's doing 22 shows a year for like in America for five years and just nailing it just and, nailing and it. saying every week, this is how it is, everyone. Fuck no. this, fuck that. Come on. No, I, it's too much hard work. Like, I, as a writer, honestly, I, I'm, I'm lazy in my soul. I There is part of me that goes, I just would love to just lie down for a very, very long time <laughs> and I'd be happy doing that. And there's, a part, there's an incredibly ungrateful side to me that when people ask me to do stuff, and I don't just mean like work, I mean anything, <laughs> where I'm like, oh, really? And I th honestly, that American system of, which I have some, you know, I obviously have some relationship with. I work on American shows sometimes, but... Which is like, you want this, don't you? You want this desperately. Here's, here's, here's more money than you can imagine now. You, we own you every hour of every day. And they do. They're like, they expect you to reply to the 4am email. You know, that's what they're buying when they buy you. And they do buy you. And I am just, I would rather live with low overheads and be able to do pretty much what I like all the time than have everything that money can buy and just have no time to enjoy it. I really, really would. And I am also intrinsically just quite lazy. I love I know there are some people who always need something to do. I don't. I love nothing to do. Which is why you're such a good writer, because you have a pool of life to, to draw from and you continue that anyway. That's... I mean, I hope so. I, Yeah, but I think there is something to that. 
There is something to that. Okay, if I can't get you to make the next Seinfeld, right, <laughs> with Billy as, as Seinfeld or whoever Seinfeld is, or nowadays or whoever, whatever your version of that is that is helpful to the world and will make us laugh for the rest of our lives, if you're not willing to do that for <laughs> the sake of us, <laughs> the viewers, then why don't you make Curb? Because Larry David wrote Curb on his own terms. Yeah. I, now, that I would find much more appealing. Um I also, but I also think it's no it's no accident that Larry David doesn't have doesn't have a totally fleshed out script for Curb. Like they arrive with plot with really 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 I, I believe this to be true anyway, with very very set plot points and also line ideas that he thinks are funny. But then they sort of tend to improvise the scenes themselves, and I really understand why that is because just sort of producing a fully formed script every week or whatever it is, however many um, they do um, a year, you know you. It's it's yeah it's just it's very hard work and it is and it is quite lonely. Whereas that thing of let's turn up and play together and create something together, even though I've got the basic structure for it, is really appealing. So, yeah. so that could that could be the thing. Yeah, it could be. I also, frankly, whenever I'm doing something, I always slightly want to do the opposite. So now I've done a bit of telly. There's a part of me that's hankering to go back and do a bit of theatre. No, I get that. I get that. It's just that we want more. Sorry, <laughs> addicts. No problem. Um, no, that that is that is interesting. The thing about about you know curb and about going over to do that. I mean, you could throw the podcast um, ball in there as well. The great thing about podcasts is you can just you know the people now consume podcasts whenever they're done. So Joe Rogan has the biggest podcast in the world. Right. Uh, he has 120 million downloads a week. Have you listened to it? Yeah, all the time. Is it good? I've never listened to it. Well, is it good? It's like saying, do you like America? Which which part do you want to go to? <laughs> yeah, true, okay. It's which Joe Rogan podcast do you listen to? Sorry, yeah, he has 120 million, 120 to 140 million downloads a month, which is separate listens. So he's listened to by about 1.5 to 1.6 billion people a year. Wow. And, you know, um, some of his podcasts are hilarious. Uh, he does, he does, he's done a recent one with his friend called Duncan Trussell, which is five hours and 12 minutes long, and it's one conversation. And they get, it's so long, right, they get shit-faced and they begin to sober up before the end of it. Oh, my God, that's a great idea. It's just fantastic. Wow. And then he'll do, like, really important ones about um, sort of uh, the um, reformation, that's not the right word, word of the police. What did you do? Instead? Oh, oh, right, reforming the police. Reforming the police in America. Um, and now Donald Trump's a listener, so Donald Trump now tweets um, uh, sound bites from Joe Rogan shows, the bits that make him sound fantastic, even though Joe may have been slated in for an hour before. But the reason I'm saying all this is because, you know, he's got the best one of these in the world. Oh, well, it's the most listened to in the world. I happen to think it's probably one of the best as well. Um, he just sold the rights to it for Spotify for three years for $100 million, which is all fine. That's all good. So it's good business too. Wow. He's just really relocated from Los Angeles to Austin, Texas for a load of other different reasons. Um, but we now know as podcast consumers that we can expect the unexpected, but we're not necessarily sure, sure when i.e. he drops a podcast whenever he wants. Right, so, so he's just in complete control of the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. So so Spotify have bought the rights to what he does for three months, but he can do or say what he wants and always has done that, and that was the deal. So it's, so it's, it's the kind of deal that you would want. But I think from a, um, a, a publishing, releasing, dropping, posting uh, point of view, wouldn't it be interesting to do a show, a television show, that pops up when it wants to. Oh my god! I mean, that obviously that would be fantastic. But I think what you're at battle with is people don't like to give up power 
essentially. And companies and producers who run television understandably want what they would describe as product and that product to be consistent and reliable so that the company can run with an expectation of what will happen next year. You know, the markets, industry, business in general runs on um, expectations being met and fulfilled, share price staying up, you know, profits meeting costs. And so the idea that they would just sort of wait patiently for an artist to choose to come and like, you know, Joe Rogan or, or Beyonce style, you know, if you're very powerful, go, now I'm going to drop my album, to them is terrifying. But this situation that we have at the moment where there's so many providers fighting for what they would call content, it does push people into a situation that's a little bit more like what you're describing, where the artists have a little bit more power to go actually no or yes, or I might take it over there, which wasn't the case before, as, as, as you know really well, for decades and decades, you know, there was only a certain number of slots on television that, that, that ran, um, you know, on, on certain hours, and they were fought over desperately. And now there is no restriction like that. Literally, the bandwidth is as wide as you want it to be and that and I don't think the the extent to which that changes the tectonic plates of the business has quite been worked out yet has has settled I don't think people quite understand what that means and what's going to happen but it is also funny to me that you know we've got so much technology now and everything is so sophisticated but what you're describing podcasts a new art form the, the new art form that has evolved as you were saying earlier, is the simplest thing. It's like going right back to basics, one person or two people chatting in a room and then other people listening to it, like 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 radio, like really basic radio. And it, it can't be a coincidence at a time of all this hyper-technology and hyper-connection and over-stimulation. People are actually responding to that. That feels both weird to me and sort of inevitable. And gorgeous. Yeah. I, I, I love, love it. I love, I love them. <laughs> I love it. I think they're amazing. Yeah. Tell us about your favourite podcast. Oh, my God. There's so many of them. I went through a massive stage of being very, very true crime obsessed, like a lot of women I know were. Um, and I, and I, you know, so, so serial and all of those, um, yeah, all of those true crime ones, Teacher's Pet, all of those. And then I sort of ran out of my own level of interest, which I think was quite healthy. There was a point where I started to go, I think I was walking down the street listening to one. And I was like, it was very dark. And I was just listening to some account of some woman getting murdered. And I was like, I should probably be paying more attention to this street where yeah, potentially I could get not murdered. not getting murdered. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I thought, yeah, that's, that's, there's something slightly odd about this. Um, I, I um, yeah, I love the Adam Buxton one. Um, I, you know, I, I always like click straight on that when a new one comes up. Um, and, there, and I love... Um, um, all killer, no filler. That is a true crime one, actually. But it's, it's two it's two stand up comedians talking specifically about serial killers, which is really fun. And um, and I also love the American. There are American political ones that I really like. Pod Save the World um, is very very good on international news. But I do get a lot of my information from them now. I also just I've started to listen to them in bed. Um, there's a really lovely one Roger Deakins, the cinematographer, does about film, which is very soothing. Oh, and there's another one which is amazing. Actually, sorry, now you've got me going. Esther Perel, the couples therapist, does one called "How Shall We Begin?" about um, where she actually talks to real life couples and records them about the problems in their relationship. And oh my god, it is so good! It is so good. It is it is moving? It is dramatic? It is insightful? And it honestly, helps you as a person. I think get to the bottom of why you behave like you behave so massive recommend for that and but there's like um 
there's a feeling now that they're a little bit like my friends, which I think is really worrying, that the voices, you become very, very used to certain voices and company. And I think I read somewhere once that if you watch a television programme into its, like, third season, the characters start to elicit the same neurochemicals in your brain as when you go and see your friends. And I started to think, oh, my God, this is what's happening a little bit with some of these podcasts. I feel immediately comforted and soothed when I put them on, which is... Great, but I just I just can't let it become a replacement for ringing my friends. <laughs> I don't think you will. <laughs> Esther Perel's amazing. She's her story is unbelievable. Have you, have you? I know a little bit about oh. her. She comes from um, she, her parents were Jewish Holocaust survivors. Yeah, is absolutely. that right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and her grandparents. I mean, just she, her story of when, when you when you dive into her backstory, you get the you understand more even more the voice of her podcast because the voice in her podcast it's so self-assured it's so confident but it has something else about it and it is a vulnerability but it comes from vulnerability and it's that it's the fact that she's she's wise beyond anybody's years but she never overplays that card because she from her past her deep past um, her lineage, she she knows, you know, innately that you never know what's around the corner, even as far as your own knowledge is concerned, mm. your own intellect, you know, your own expertise almost. And I think that's... Because she didn't she write the book Unconscious Coupling? I can't remember. I think I, she came up... I think she came up with that... Might be, yeah. I think she was... She was Gwynny and um, Chris Martin's girl. No way, I really? Think, yeah, I think... She, I think she, uh, by the way, could be wrong. No. Um, it sounds. I mean, if you had the money, that's who you'd want. <laughs> yeah, but I think she invented unconscious coupling, and she she takes you through it. There's another podcast where she's being interviewed about her this thing she created of unconscious, and there's a way to do it. And I, when when you know, because I'm stupid and uh, pejorative, I when I heard about Gwyneth and Chris Martin. Uh, splitting up and they called it unconscious couple. I said, oh, you know, do me a favour. No, but that was what they were told it was and that's why they said that's uh, what they did. Yeah, because she wrote an article, didn't she, Gwyneth Paltrow, wrote a little essay a while ago about that where she... And, I, and it was actually incredibly beautiful in the way that those things always are. Because as you say, if somebody actually tells you honestly what happened to them when they were going through a, a divorce or a bereavement or whatever the loss was... You're very rarely going to go, ah, you idiot. Like, everybody's experience will be painful and genuinely interesting and upsetting and beautiful and all those things. And so she wrote this short essay where she describes and says, we were just trying to find our way through something and that seemed like a good description of it. And then the immediate public response was like, oh, you fa- you know, you sort of famous hippie idiot. Yeah. You mean you're splitting up? Yeah, exactly. And, and all the focus, which is very contemporary, all the focus was on the sort of superficial language rather than the fact that they were sort of trying to do something that is really hard that loads of people go through they had the public eye to also contend with around that and that's the words that they like there is a radical empathy that people like Esther Perel and Cheryl Strayed and there are other people who work in, in that sort of where psychology and writing meet talk about that I do think is really really helpful right now because our lives are so much about going give me the least information possible so I can sort of say that I know about that thing and then move on and that's what a phrase like that you know conscious uncoupling or whatever it was represents to people they're like oh that sounds stupid what's the next thing what's the next thing and actually yeah taking some time to go oh I suppose it's awful for anyone when that happens and it's a bit like when I broke up with so and so and that's horrible is more difficult but much more necessary and human so what about this, um, what about you sitting here today, 20-odd years, if it's that, I think it's a bit less, actually, after giving yourself a time limit to be any good at what you've turned out 
being brilliant at. How very dare you? Or, or will we ever know? She said, I gave myself 18 months, uh, but it all clicks into place. I reckon you'd have cracked on till, till it... Did Do happen. you? Yeah, I, oh, I disagree. I disagree. <laughs> well, I, you're you and I'm me, so I have yeah, no idea. <laughs> I, um, yeah, so what I did was um, in my 20s, I had applied for law school because I, I had always thought I quite wanted to be a barrister, particularly a criminal barrister or, you know, maybe human rights or something. And I applied and I got in. And I, I, I had that feeling that you do sometimes get in life where you go, OK, I can see where this track takes me. If I get on this train, this is where it goes. And I, and I was interested in that and excited about that. But there was this other part of me, much deeper down, that was going, I wonder if I could actually make a living doing the thing that I feel more emotionally connected to. And that was sort of writing. And, but I didn't believe that that was a job. You know, I thought that was either a sort of odd hobby or something you did privately to, you know, be a bit weird and keep a diary or whatever. So there was a, so basically I said to myself, I, I'll, I'll put that off that law school place for another year and I'll, and I'll spend that time trying to, to get something as a writer. And, and I sort of made this deal with myself that if anything happens, if, the, if, if, if anything gives you the sign that you can do this professionally, then you'll give yourself permission to do it. And that's what happened. But that's very much like how my brain works all the time, like imposing a structure on myself that doesn't need to be there in order to basically test myself and see if I can fulfil it, which is an exhausting way to live, but it's basically how I live all the time. So that's Lucy 1 talking to Lucy 2? Completely. And those two are at loggerheads often. <laughs> I mean, and, and that's when you're self-employed, like that's my whole relationship with myself is I'm both my boss and my employee. So even from the moment I wake up in the morning, there's Lucy one going like, better do some work today. You'll feel terrible if you don't do any writing today. Yeah. And the employee going, yeah, but I feel quite tired. And actually, you know, the deadline isn't for three weeks. So I could probably take today off. And boss going, no, you can't. And then basically by the end of the day, there is either, you know, there is either support and applause from Lucy One or just, you know, shame and head shaking. And that's, I mean, obviously messed up. But, that, yeah, that is a dialogue I'm very used to. That inner conflict can be exhausting, can't it? It really can. And I'm trying really hard to get over it. Do you have any of that? Yeah, you do have it. Um, as you get older, to use that <laughs> phrase again, it just, you just, it, honestly, it all settles down. Mm. And it's, it's, it's really liberating. And then you want to go back to you know, maybe you're sort of 10 year younger self, but you can't because you're no longer there. Uh, but other people are there available. And you want to say, look, you might want to do this, but you can't because there's no point because because they haven't got those ears that, you know, they're, they're not listening for that kind of thing as you weren't. And, you know, we're all where, exactly where we're supposed to be because of what's, everything that's happened to us beforehand. And then you smile at that as well. So, so you know, one realisation leads to the next and the next and the next and the next. And then you realise that and then you don't bother having any of them because, you know, it's just sort of, a, um, what is it called? Not a chain event, what's it called? Well, a, a consequence. No, no. A, a, a chain reaction. Chain reaction, That yeah. kind of thing. And it's and that, again, is li really liberating. And that quietens the two voices. Mm. And the two voices sort of, they tend to become more harmonious. Um, and then you, I think you separate for different reasons. So you separate for Friday night and Monday morning and things. It's it, more fun. Yeah. You know? And it's like, it's like uh, your mind as opposed to your imagination. You know, so... so you, you know, the monkey mind. So the monkey mind is a nightmare unless you give the monkey a job. 
you know, and then you you can't, you know, when you get stuck in your mind, you can't fix the mind with the mind. So how do you do that? Yeah. Well, you can do it with action. So you want to change your mood, uh, change, you know, act, different action equals different mood or different record or different go outside, have a walk, have a drink, whatever you want to do. You've got to be careful with, you know, taking things from the outside to change the way you feel inside. Mm. Um, but that can work to a certain extent, especially, you know, if what you're if what you're using to change your impasse or to move your impasse on or to become unstuck comes from you as well. That's very safe because you're not taking anything from anywhere else. Um, but I think the, what I've, the most recent lesson and mm. they never stop coming mm-hmm. is, is this imagination thing. So it's about pessimism and optimism. So our mind, i.e., our brain the monkey mind, whatever you want to call it, is automatically pessimistic. Right. Because, I can relate. <laughs> because it's about your amygdala. It's about your fight or flight or your fright and your freeze. Because mm. I thought it's fight or flight. Well, there's fright and freeze in there as well. I'm sure there are some other Fs if you want to throw them in there. And so your 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 consciousness, your lower consciousness, your brain, your mind, is programmed to just detect red flags. Well, because why wouldn't it be? It's like the worst thing that could happen is yeah. that you're going to be attacked or killed or something. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so why, you know, so the brain is like, well, let's prepare for that worst thing, especially, especially as, you know, we're evolved... We're, we're evolved for a landscape that is probably more dangerous than the one that we live in now. It's funny you should say that thing about the Fs, fight and flight and freeze, because I think they have added a fourth one, which I really relate to, which is fawn, which I think I Hate Susie has a lot in it about, which is, and because it, it's particularly a female quality, which is when you feel under massive duress or pressure or anxiety, fawn, you sort of try and please, you try and placate immediately because you sort of know you're not going to be able to win in the fight. Freezing won't do anything for you. And you might be able to back out of the room smiling, you know? And and actually, I, the character of Susie has a lot of that in the show, which I wanted to put in because I didn't think it had been explored very much, which is that reaction of when you are, yeah, really, really stressed like she is or under the public eye all the time. That's a, that's something that you can do, and it is as dangerous as you know being drawn to fight or flight, um, and very confusing for people around you. I had a lesson recently that I think has really helped me around what you were talking about with imagination, which is I realised that I'd been doing what I do in my work in my life too much, which was writing for me had always been a way of like telling a story out of how I felt. So, and it had been very successful for me, what I started to do professionally. So if I was feeling um, angry or lonely or um, upset or sad, you know, I could write, I could build a story out of it and write that with that feeling. And it had, and it has, you know, been my job and got me some acclaim and stuff. But I was worked out that I was also doing that in my life, which is... If I felt something, I was telling myself a story about it that wasn't necessarily true, you know. So, you know, that thing of like someone doesn't text you back and you're like suddenly go, your brain is priming to go. That's because they've seen my text. They're ignoring it. They hate me. They never want to see me again. They're with somebody else that they prefer. And all of a sudden you're like five acts into this play that they've got no idea is happening or, 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 you know, and and isn't happening and isn't true, but you're building up in yourself all the feelings related to that. So the next time you talk to them, you're like, yeah, yeah. How are you? Yeah. Okay. You have a good day. Like you distance yourself. You're really sort of, and they've got no idea because they haven't seen the play in the in-between time. And I realised that I was doing that sort of thing quite a lot because that muscle has been so, worked so hard for me in my professional life that I was just doing it automatically in reference to everything and it was kind of messing a bit of my life up. And 
now I've realised that, you know, I can try and separate it a little bit more. And when I start to do that in my own head, start to tell myself some story that no one else is a part of based on some tiny thing that's happened, I, st- I just sort of go, wait, stop. What part of this is true? Can you know it's true? Have you asked anybody whether it's true before I get onto Act 2, Act 3, Act 4? That's the monkey mind, isn't it? So it's it's the irrational thought loop, which is the monkey mind. The monkey mind takes over because you haven't given the monkey a job. Mm. It wants it wants to help you survive, but you're not in any danger. So it then has to create danger to save yourself to save yourself from. Right. That's that's, 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 that's how that's I've lived my is. whole life. <laughs> but that's what it is. And just talking, it's a runaway train. And yeah. when you were talking about, it, you were getting faster and faster because the train was running further and further away and passing more and more stations. Oh my god! And we're going to run out of line in a minute. And we're going to come to off a cliff and the bridge. That's- Gonna exactly blow up and, it. That's oh exactly God. it. And it's an exhausting way to live that. It's exhausting to hear it. <laughs> Sorry, no, everyone. by the way, by the way, I've been there. It's just like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And this is why therapists earn their money, let me tell you. Yeah. Because um, there's FUPO as well. Have you heard of FUPO? No. So FOMO, fear of fear of missing out. The new one is FUPO because FOMO has disappeared to an extent because of lockdown. So there's not so much to miss out on. So, But FOMO has been uh, replaced by or supplanted by FUPO, which is fear of other people's opinion, which is sort of what you were talking about before. Oh, yeah, fear of other people's opinion. Well, that's a huge it's thing. It's fun, it's fun, it's what you were saying. Yeah, it's like, like me, like me, you know, and, and therefore I will not be in danger because you will like me and I, and therefore I won't get hurt. And and I think that is happening on a grand scale online now because because people can control or believe they can control other people's perceptions of them. So you're sort of tempted to go, I'm lovely, I'm funny, I've got all the right opinions. And I guess what's dangerous about that, and that's just a really obvious point, but what's dangerous about that is it leads to you just performing being fun or a good person or likeable without actually going through any of the lessons or the uh, learning or the um, change and thought to get there. So you sort of build this odd carapace of people who know how to how to react to things without actually having any sense of self. It's always amazing to me that people attack other people's reactions to things online so much rather than just focus for a moment on what they're feeling. And, uh, yeah, I worry a bit about that and what that becomes. And that's a bit, again, that's in Susie a bit, the show, because Billy's character is an actress, which, believe it or not, you know, wasn't just a lazy choice to do with it being the same job that Billy does now. It's also that, in a way, a lot of us are acting now, yeah. you know, and, and the, the, how we're perceived and our performance of ourselves is becoming more and more important than what's underneath. Well, there's that great phrase, isn't there? You know, a problem shared is a problem problem halved. And the, I think the verb share is really important there. Uh, but the verb share has been hijacked to share, you know, your smiles, your great nights out. You know, that's not sharing, that's spreading, I think, you know, which yeah. is... Inter- but you say spread, it doesn't sound... You, do, you don't want to spread, you want to share. But, you know, if you were sharing uh, pain and hurt and confusion and frustration you know, and therefore eliciting empathy, then it would be really useful. But it, it's just not that because people don't want to be appear to be vulnerable, you know. And yeah. this this whole thing about, you know, the, the selfie, um, you know, the, and we all see it, don't we? You know, you're walking across one of the bridges here, the Millennium Bridge or whatever, and you see somebody, you know, uh, and they're, 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 they're looking like people do, you know, when they're walking across a bridge on their own, you know, wherever that may be. And then they get their phone out and then they put this smile on. <laughs> and they go, this this is me. And it's by the way, it's it's not it's not it's not now's fault because how about this? Um, you know, in wedding photographs, 
you know, for centuries gone by, smile at the camera. Yeah. It's like, but that's not the time we're having. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. The only time we smiled for this whole wedding was when you asked us to for the photograph. <laughs> and so it's always been the case, hasn't it? So it's not just now. It's a weird fucking thing now. Uh, yeah, but I think the difference is that the, that that period of time that you're describing, which is the sort of time that it takes to take the photograph, has extended and expanded. Yeah. So because of our phones and because of being able to live in that in the virtual life as well, rather than the two seconds that you have to make the smile, it's all of the day or something, you know, and, and that is different psychologically, I guess. I'm really interested in what you just said about the difference between sharing and spreading because you're right, they're two different verbs because share implies that two people are involved. Two people have or, or to. Or more. Yeah, or more, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that something will be given, but also crucially something will be taken together. Yeah. You know, whereas spreading can just be one person, is just one person yeah. doing something and doesn't necessarily have to involve other people being there or not. And that is a really good analogy for online life because you present something, you put it out there and then you go away, you mm. know. You're not, you're not necessarily interested in whether it's received, who receives it, how it is received. You're not present for it. Yeah. in the way that you are when you actually share something where you're like, do you want some of, you know, like, or with kids, when you watch a, you to teach a kid to share, you can see they really don't want to and then they do mm. and the other kid is really, really happy and you go, gosh, that was really good. That's, a, that's an inaction that's quite specific to do with those two kids, not one person doing something and then going away. And that, I do think, yeah, I do think that's an odd word to use, share, for what we do online. You're or, right. or not. Maybe somebody's done a lot of research about it and said that's the word you should use because um, it's actually, you know, it's based in, in what's good and we need to hijack what's good to spread perhaps what's not so good. Without being too literary about it, if you think about it, you spread a virus, mm. you know, you spread a rumour. You know, you share a problem, you share your success, you share your happiness. I mean, you know, by the way, that's not hard and fast, but it's 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 pretty obvious that, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and also having said all of that, like there's lots of pleasure that I get from being online and technological stuff and I, you know, I, I use it a lot. So I don't think it is entirely bad. No, 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 by the way, it's not at all. Mm. It's really, really not. That's sort of not the conversation we're having. Mm. It's just a specific conversation about a specific thing. So when you were a receptionist yeah. at the theatre, right, yeah. just tell us um, what was the plan there? How much fun uh, did you have? Um, what did you learn? And what do you still draw from from that experience? OK, so for a while I was a secretary, really. It was a secretary at the National Theatre, um, which was sort of typing, typing up letters, um, filing, taking phone calls. But it was in the arti artistic director's office. So there were a few people above me. I was I was kind of, you know, the the, the lowest down. But it was at the centre of the National Theatre and that was really exciting. So I, I just applied for it. It was advertised in G2. The Guardian had a media day on Mondays then. I don't know if they still do. And I just applied for the job in that and got down to the last two. Anyway, I lied about my typing speed at that point, which I then came to regret because um, Nick, who ran the theatre at the time, Nick Heitner, would um, would dictate letters sometimes, which I was not expecting. It seemed like quite an old school practice. And, um, and I was just like desperately trying to keep up on this keyboard, trying, uh, hoping that he wouldn't walk around and look at the screen and see how many mistakes I'd made. So I was in a bit of a panic. But um, what was brilliant about it was... It's only really when you work in something that you start to know that you might want to work 
um, in a different capacity in it. And that's why having access to stuff like this is really important, you know, internships and stuff like that and not the kind of internships that have been going on in arts for years and years and years, which is someone gets their goddaughter in, you know, and they don't actually need to pay them because they're rich anyway. I mean, people who might not have the opportunity to work in arts or entertainment and they get to see it. So I'm just a secretary and I see how theatre is made a bit. You know, I'm scheduling meetings, I'm doing typing, but I'm also seeing scripts sort of be passed across the desk. And it's easy for me to open up those scripts and start to read them, which I do. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and it's, and you know what one of the most inspiring things is that nobody ever talks about? An inspiring thing is seeing bad work as well as good work. Not because, like, not because it's a moral bad. What I mean is when you read a script and it isn't ready yet and you go, oh, this is... Um, not as great as maybe I would have assumed it was and it'll take a few more drafts to get there and everyone's just acting like that's fine because it is fine, that's how it works. We, we, we're only really exposed to most stuff at its final point and so people don't see how much stuff is rubbish in its first few drafts, including, massively including all of mine. And so when I read those scripts, I was like, oh, I could have a bash at this. It felt achievable to have a go and... That's when I did start doing that. So I would sort of stay there after hours and write a little bit on the computer there, which is very romantic. You know, you're sort of in a theatre as it's getting dark by the Thames, sort of trying to write your own play, you know, a little bit in the story of my own life going, oh, I hope I hope one day I can do this. Um, so, yeah, that was that was nice. <laughs> I love the fact you ran off with yes. So yeah, that was nice. Because okay, <laughs> here comes the killer. Here comes the clincher. And then you write plays that are on at the national. Da, da, da. Come yeah. on. I mean, yeah. that's what you knew I was thinking, which is why you just rounded it off. Thank you. Like, oh my goodness me. And then I did that. And then he's going to say this. And now my, this is the, because it, it is a dream come true, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And another thing that I think was maybe the one that impacted me the most was, I went up to Sheffield to see a production of a play I wrote called The Effect, which Daniel Evans did there. And I love that play and I love Daniel Evans as a director. And I had gone to university at Sheffield. So when I was a student, I would go to The Crucible and watch stuff because they had like a deal where we could get in really cheap with the theatre. The university had set something up. And so that was an age where I was really impressionable and excited about life in that world and I hadn't been back to Sheffield since the year after I'd left university so it was a long time and that journey back up and remembering the train journey and then getting off the train and remembering the city which I loved and I had a good time there as a student and then walking to the crucible and seeing the name of my play on the, in the studio there I did find that profoundly affecting because because my only last memory of it was being that sort of 22-year-old or 23-year-old who had just left and and the landscape of it and the architecture of the city. So I was completely in contact with that person and going, okay, yeah, you did all right, well done. Go on. It was nice. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny, isn't it? Isn't life funny? Mm, it is. And, well, yeah, and also deeply, deeply fortunate as well. And You wear yeah. your socks off, though. Yeah, 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 as well. Absolutely, no doubt. You know, 
Um, so when you write when you write anything, you really enjoy the research as well, don't you? And so, and this is what this is. You know, you're so funny. Lucy, because you, you say you're lazy. Yeah, but you, you spent ages, you, you say you're lying at home. You're not just lying at home staring at the ceiling. You're lying at home, at home finding out about oh, things. Staring at the ceiling, Chris. How I'd love to just stare <laughs> at the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, yeah. And in, and and that is one of my favourite stages. I love that. Um, research for me is, is, is probably a sophisticated form of procrastinating. You know, it's like, oh, I don't want to start the writing. I'll just read another book or, you know, interview somebody. But I, I love it because it's the point where something could be brilliant. Like nothing's on paper yet. It's all still in your head and you're and you're finding new stuff out all of the time. Some projects demand more of it than others. You know, I did a I did a play about corporate fraud about the company Enron, and that required a lot of research just to know what I was talking about numbers wise you know, event wise. And I didn't want to get it wrong. I didn't want someone to be sat there going, that's incorrect. And so I, to protect myself, I felt I had to do a lot of research, but I, yeah, that's sort of, I'm very happy in that stage, sort of surrounded by books when everything is possible, um, is probably when I'm happiest. So when you pick on a subject like Enron, for example, you mentioned there, you know, I mean, that's a big old thing to pick on isn't it by the way it was so prescient and, and the Goldman Sachs was Lehman Brothers Goldman Sachs happened at Lehman the... Brothers fell during our rehearsal period I mean, you were like yes. no they weren't connected <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly I was like yes all these people have lost their jobs and money no, no I was but but it was it's funny that happened again recently with um so just when we start went into rehearsals for a very expensive poison which is the last play that I wrote about the death of Alexander Litvinenko the Scripals got poisoned in Salisbury. Um, and so that was another example of a very, very strange thing where you're working on something and then life sort of announces that it's going to, you know, be involved in you working on it as well. It kind of feels like everything is um, relevant all the time. And so, that, yeah, it happened with Enron when Lehman fell and it happened with Poison when the Scripals were... were, were well, they tried to kill them, but they didn't succeed. So when some, I mean, lots of things must come, I don't know, uh, I'm presuming quite a few things come on your radar. So why would you pinpoint Enron then? Why would you go for Enron? Well, it didn't come on my radar. I, I wanted to do it and took it to somebody. And my experience has been that the work that I've done like that has been the best work. Sorry, I meant on your personal radar, didn't you? Oh, mean? I see, right. Um, I just... Well, I think there's lots of reasons for that. The more professional reason is I really sensed immediately how theatrical it could be. I'm only really interested in doing plays that could only be plays, you know. I, I myself am not the sort of person who likes to go to the theatre and watch something that could be on TV, you know, but it's more expensive and less comfortable. That's not my bag. <laughs> I like to go to the theatre. And the queue for the toilet's longer. Yeah, I mean, it's mental. <laughs> I uh, my, my experience of theatre, I want. I want to see, like, a chorus line dancing, you know, in a way that I could never do. Yeah, it, can but I'm in a room done, it can't be done in your living room. Yeah, it can't yeah. be done. In, yeah, and, 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 and it just has something so specifically theatrical about it that means that I understand why it's a play. Yeah. So when I started... When I sort of learn about Enron, I, I I was like, well, there's. It feels like a tragedy. It feels like one of these big Shakespearean tragedies. This fall of this empire, in this case, a company, and these men who sort of betrayed each other and knifed each other at the end. But it also felt like a musical. Like they were such performers. They were such jazz hands guys. They were like, um, 
don't look over there, look over here, mm. you know, very much like in magic, which again is a very theatrical art form, that they, they're... Their whole thing was, we'll throw the biggest parties, we'll buy the biggest gifts, and nobody will ask how we're making our money. And that was very much the thing. And I, I, and I thought, well, that can only be a show. There's not really a film that can capture that. Um, and it shouldn't be naturalistic, it shouldn't be realistic, it should be um, mad and imaginary, like the company was mad and imaginary, because the profits were imaginary. So I was like, I could see the form of it. I could see the form of it. But... Um, <laughs> But personally, also truthfully, I have a lot of family who work in business. Right. And I'm the only one that's sort of gone into something very different from that. Not, not my mum. My mum's always worked in, like, schools, so that's different. But a lot of my family, my dad and my siblings, and, and also a lot of people I went to university with, just immediately got on that uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, sort of Accenture, KPMG kind of just corporate conveyor belt into business. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it was odd to me that there was an assumed path that didn't take into account what you wanted to do with your life, actually, or what you believed in. Like some of these people were quite radically political at university. And then you sort of stop being that and go and work in the yeah. city. And I found that not so much sort of, I wasn't judgmental of it. I was just a bit confused. And there was a little bit of me that was childishly ignorant, like a lot of us are. I was like, I don't really understand what these companies do. Mm. Like, they, they're all these buildings in London. They're a huge part of the economy and they make billions and billions. But I don't have any idea what they do. And I couldn't really describe it. And that always lights something in my head where I feel like if there's a black box that no one's looking in or if there's an elephant in the corner that no one's talking about I get very very inspired about it and that's what it felt like at the time that particular financial consultancy and corporations who do that sort of thing felt like that to me anyway so personally I was exploring some stuff about that and professionally I was um I just thought oh it'd make a great show so it came out of that really I mean, you're, you are right, it's fascinating. The, the whole financial sector, I mean, what is, you know, what is... Well, what ha what happened was it all, you know, collapsed in 2000. I know, but even now, you, you know, say. they say, you know, the, the, on every news bulletin, on Rolling News on the telly 24-7, on however many channels there are around the world now, they give you the, the FTSE or the NASDAQ, you know, and that's relevant to about 0.001% of the population. Yes. You know, and they go, the, the market has lost confidence... Who gives a fuck? I mean, it does. We all have to give a fuck in the end because it affects us all. But why? It should never affect any of us. But you're, but you're that. But also that 0.01% that you're referencing are the people who make money, oh, and and they move those levers and they have control and profits and and they are people who, yeah, who don't necessarily always pay their tax, but they make a massive amount of money and the more that we start to realise that there is a 0.001% who are favoured so horrifically by the way that our system is set up. And that is what's been happening over the last 10 years. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the political uproar and craziness, I think, is tied to an understanding of the difference between most people and this small 1% and a dissatisfaction with that. But the Top 1% also own a huge amount of the media, to go back a little bit to succession, um, which informs you about all of these things. Mm. So if you live within a system where, as you say, the, what the markets are doing doesn't really seem to help or inform 
99% of people who are just living their normal lives, but it's hugely important for this very wealthy 1%, then how you learn about that is through media that is controlled by that 1% is deeply corrupt. So then what happens is people start to look to other sources and we suddenly have this form that's created that basically provides all the information in the world, allegedly. People start looking to it for information, understandably. It's just prime for people to be fooled, to be confused, to be... um, uh, distracted. Distracted, absolutely, which is what the net's done. And also if you're really smart, if you're Russia or... Um, or or some other, you know, power looking to disrupt disrupt yeah society, particularly America. You've you've literally got this huge blank slate on which you can write anything. And it's child's play. Once you start to to just you just just take off the first cover. I mean, what I think about the stock market and the financial markets mm-hmm. is is can be summed up in a couple of sentences. If you take an industry which has made Billions and billions and billions and billions, Brian Coxie, Professor Brian Coxie, billions and billions (laughs) and billions and billions of dollars more by trading the companies than the companies ever made whilst being traded. There's something wrong. (laughs) It's insane. Yeah. I mean, as soon as we as soon as we sort of divorced from um, creating something which you then sell, as you say, now most money in that sector is made by as you say trading companies or even trading futures of products oh, trading the here future. we go or hedging you yeah know. hedging trading the tra- trading the future price of something essentially a sophisticated form of gambling mm. and and that, that sort of shadow market as it were is worth so much more than the market tied to real things firstly a lot of people just lose attention span which i totally get a lot of people just go well, this isn't for me. I don't understand this. This is too complex. So you you leave a massive section of the economy to people who do understand it, not because they're necessarily clever. I have met a lot of traders in my time who I would not describe as clever, but because they are driven to it and and, and just learn how it yeah, works. The ambition and the hunger. Ambition and the hunger and the testosterone and want to, you know, move those levers to make a, a load of money, and they do. And they don't really mind how it affects the person whose mortgage price changes or whatever it is. So... Yeah, it's yeah, it, it is very difficult when a society's economy gets divorced from its underlying actual values, and I don't just I don't mean that in a moral way, although I think it probably becomes that. And the other thing we talked about there very quickly um, is, is the disruption thing. You know, so there's a book, and I can never remember the bloody name of it, but it was written in the sixties. Um, I think it was written in the sixties about the the Russia's plan to uh, Russia's Russia's philosophy and strategy of disruption, and they've always done it. You know, uh, propaganda disrupts as well. So we've done it. You know, it's been done over the years, over millennia, probably. but it's never been easier than now because all you have to do it's it it's costless. It doesn't cost anything to send an email um, to 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 corrupt various avenues of social media. It, you know, it okay. It might cost you a troll farm, but that's pennies as far as, as oh, these totally. empirical sort of uh, tyrannical um, uh, uh, collective brains are concerned. It, 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 it might as well cost nothing. It might as well cost less than nothing because the effect it has. So it's never been cheaper to do. It's never been easier to do. And I always remember when Saddam Hussein, um, when he he, he realised that his, his days were numbered, and so he went to Kuwait and just set all 
the oil wells on fire. Do you remember when he did that? Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I said this, you know, if you talk about metaphors, uh, imagine an arsonist. So if you, if you, and all an arsonist needs is a box of matches, which is, used to be 10p, 5p, whatever. And there's 48 matches in, in a small box or, or, or 96 in a box of swan vestas, <laughs> right? And, but with that, he could light 96 fires potentially. And that would take 96 fire brigades to put them out. So to disrupt is easy and mm. to cope with disruption is, is actually infinite and impossible. It's infinitely impossible. And so do you bother in the first place uh, to do that, and then I had this conversation last week about, you know, it's, we're, we're on the we're on the the precipice, the sort of monthly eve of the next American election, and it's like, you know, but but um, Trump is Putin's man, and somebody said, well, no, he's not. Putin doesn't care who he wins as long as the system falls to bits, and that's all they want. And that, that's so, you, so you've got the financial markets making billions and billions and billions more trading things that do exist, don't exist, might exist, might never exist, more than the companies themselves that are making things and employing people uh, ever, ever have and ever will. And then you've got this disruption thing. And if you take those two tenets of our current civilization, you go, Thanks, oh, Gary. my God, uh, we need to, well, let's all watch Dirty Dancing on Loop or something like that. Well, so, that is, yeah. And then Netflix shares go up. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, yeah, it's yes, it is it is frightening genuinely and I I think if I think when a time comes and I hope it will that we can follow the money properly, um the way that it streams to the way that it's streamed to Trump and I would also say Putin and the sort of kleptocratic leaders of Russia, a lot of the dark money has swilled around there for a very very long time and yeah, is worth investigating. And hopefully one day there will be a different leader of Russia. I'm particularly a big fan of Alexei Navalny, who himself was recently poisoned and survived um, by most people believe um, Russian government forces. And that would will change some things politically, but it won't change what you've just described, which is the form of, yeah, disruption. So easy to disrupt. So easy. I mean, the only thing I can think positively is I've been thinking lately about... It might be about us evolving very, very quickly, a different way of looking at our screens and our information. And we might be just in the heart of us not having that capacity yet and us having too much technological access. Because I remember when I was about 16 or something, I remember going into a newsagent's with my dad and all the papers were out. And I, and I remember like picking up a paper because mum wanted us to get the the Sunday papers and dad going no not that one and I was like why not that one because to me when I was 16 I thought all of these are things that just have the news in them that's what they are they're newspapers and I remember him going look look no look at each of them and see how they tell that differently which is like the earliest sort of media studies thing moment I ever had and it never occurred to me that people would have different agendas as to you know and, and be trying to sort of alter your thinking I just thought it was like a chocolate bar or something you buy the one you like anyway and when I started to think of it like that I thought oh okay I don't want to buy the Daily Mail or the Telegraph or whatever it was because I can see how they're spinning that story that if I read a different account of it is not the case and I wonder if what we need to develop is a completely different set of anal analytical tools for when we browse the net like completely different and I think, although that's really hard to do, and I don't know how it happens, I think it might be absolutely necessary that everything we look at, we immediately, sadly, don't immediately trust. 
Because humans, they might be wired for pessimism, as you said earlier, but I think we're also wired for trust and those things interact. We're wired when we encounter somebody and they say, hello, my name's Brian, to not go, well, maybe his name isn't Brian. Maybe he's telling me his name's Brian for another nefarious reason. Otherwise, society just collapses. But I think we might have to start re-looking at that a little bit and trying to change that little bit of our brain that particularly when it comes to a screen is accepting stuff automatically. Well, it's about the freedom of the West in a way. So what I didn't say before was that we, our minds, our brains might be wired for pessimism, but our imagination is is wired, but it's not even wired because it's more ethereal than that, for optimism. Mm. So there is massive, no, there's huge light at the end of this tunnel here. And uh, what I love about it is that if you, maybe God gave us a clue. So if you look at the depth of it, if you look at the dimensions of a human being, so our foundations that stop us from falling over are our feet. So they're our roots because, you know, that's why they're shaped like they are. So we don't fall over, which is great. And if you don't have any feet, you fall over. <laughs> You know, even if apparently, even if you lose the odd toe, it can be an issue. And then, um, and then you, as you go up the torso, you know, you you get um, past, uh, you know, all the all the all the gubbins that you need to do your business and things like that. <laughs> the yeah, gubbins, yeah, yeah, all the gubbins down there. And then you get to your tummy, and so your tummy is your emotions, and your tummy is your emotions, and um, it's it's your being and. It's the essence of who you are. And, you know, if you talk about chakras and, you know, that, that's a very important one. Is that in your tummy? Well, it's, 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 not, it's, it's, it's opposite to your tummy. Okay. So it's, it's where your back is. So, so to the chakra, we could get into these, but... The, I don't the, know anything about The it. same colours of the rainbow. So, you know, uh, green, the green chakra is, is close to your heart and that's, you know, that's nature and that's to do with love and all this kind of stuff. But orange is your is your creative chakra, and that's a, that's sort of where your belly button is. So so, but anyway, so so you've got that going on there. Then you go to your heart, which is how you care, and then you go to to your larynx and to your voice, which is how you communicate, and then you go to your ears, which is how you receive, and your eyes and all your senses and things like that. Then you go to your head, which is your computer. But then if you carry on going, you know, above your beyond and above your form, that's where your imagination and your creativity is. It just doesn't happen. I thought to... you were going to say hat. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, if you want to keep your imagination warm, <laughs> yeah. you know, as the, as the winter draws in, then you can do that. But that's where that lives. And it just hovers above you. And if you if you think about creativity, which is ironic in itself, because thinking about the thing that you don't use to think um then there's a certain there's a certain lightness to it and it's it's best when it's untethered it's unfettered it's informed and it's connected but it's it's not um contaminated by by your past or your 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 onboard computer mm. and that that bit is very very optimistic mm. and i think that if you think about um what did i say before it's about what did I say before? What was the word I said before? Which one? Pessimism. No, no. no I said it's about. Oh, it's the whole thing. So you said, uh, can't I can't remember. But the thing. Um, what was the word I used? I can't remember. So far away from myself doesn't matter. But I think that if we get to a point where the online sort of um, monopoly of our of it's about the West. I said it's about the freedom mm. of the West. Um, if we get to the point where that is so constraining for so many people that a few people make a break for it and then I seem to be having such a great time. Make a break for it how? By not being constrained by it. Right. By saying, no, this is oh, enough for I me. Oh, I see, right? yes. So it's, and it's the, it's the wall. It's the Berlin Wall. But it just mm. happens to be a more, a, a more sort of virtual one than a physical one. Now, what if, what if 
what if the internet and everything that's bad about it becomes East Berlin and those that make a break for it start to live in whatever the internet version is of West Berlin? Yeah. Now, that that might be where we are and because people just want to have a good time. And currently the masses think the good time is online, it's with convenience, it's with ease, it's with it's just with instant gratification or whatever that might might be. And, you know, mass communication, but not about things that are very important, but that doesn't seem to be that important yet. But it might be when things, people feel less worthless and with less feel like they're waking up with less purpose every morning, then they'll look at, well, they're having a great time. What are they doing? Well, they've left all this behind. Okay, let's all leave it behind. Mm. So it might sort itself out. Yeah, and that, yeah, that could happen. And one thing that surprises me is the lack of accountability that people take compared to how it used to be. Like one popular refrain on Twitter is you get a lot of people going, oh God, I hate it here. Like it's so awful here. Like I hate it here. With with this no sense at all that they have any choice or, you know, that it could be different. As part of the joke of Twitter is, oh, this absolute hellhole that I'm forced to spend time in that obviously isn't the case. But I do think there's quite an odd thing at the heart of that, which is it used to be the case that let's say you did have a bad experience with a company. Um, Let's say you bought a sofa and it was really late and then when it arrived, it was all like, you know, in a bad condition. You would have a sort of customer service process that you went through where somebody would grovelingly apologise. They'd say, we'll send you another one. We'll pick that one up. And then you would decide at the end of that whether or not you would use that service again. If something bad happens to you on one of these social media things or the service is really, really poor. I mean, I got hacked once on Instagram just by people who just wanted to hack, I think, and ended up losing my account. And I just thought, oh, God, I better get in touch with Instagram and tell them this thing has happened and how do I get my photos back or how do I just get access to my account again? I couldn't even get in touch with Instagram. There wasn't even a facility for me to... um, inform somebody that this had happened customer services customer service of any kind um or or like and and i was like that can't be right this is like a hugely profitable massive corporation but of course one of the reasons that it's massively profitable is they don't have any customer service they don't care they have users and if the users disappear if if my account disappears i can never access it again it makes no difference to them whatsoever and it's like a totally different new a new way of living. And I ended up like writing to my friend who I knew had gone out with somebody who once worked for Instagram. And I was like, this is medieval that I'm trying to like use a contact to basically get access to some, I'm gro- grovelingly going, you know, to them going, um, could you please pay attention slightly to the fact that your entire thing is flawed and awful? Please, do you mind? Sorry to bother you. And and I just thought, God, if this is happening en masse, this complete lack of accountability for somebody's experience, combined with them feeling trapped within it, that doesn't end well. And as you say, hopefully that will mean that at some point a bunch of people will go, oh, screw this, I'm going to go and do something else. Yeah, people want to jump over the wall and escape to the West. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. And um, it's funny because... Have you seen The Social Dilemma? Yeah. Right, because they talk... There's that great... There's many great lines in that film. There's that also that amazing joke at the end. Do you remember that joke at the end? What was the joke at the end about his kids? No, no. Fo- uh, followers on social media, only joking. Oh, yeah. Yes, <laughs> well, yes. she's just kidding. Yeah. But there's that great line in there as well where um, the only two... I think it's the only two sort of corporate phenomena uh, that use this term uh, that, that, that refer to their customers as users 
is illegal drugs right. and social media. And that's what you're saying. It's like, I'm a user. I'm one of your users. Yeah. Yeah, but we don't care about users because users run for losers. Yeah, and there'll always be more users, essentially. Yeah. Like, if somebody dies of that overdose, that's fine. Well, you know, there, there's somebody else who will yeah. come along behind them. It's not the business we're in. This no. is not a two-way street here. Oh, exactly. And that goes all the way back to what you were saying about the difference between spreading and sharing. Some One thing is a two-way street. The other thing is not. Accountability, which is yeah. what you were saying. And it's um yeah, and I think that is we're 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 slightly becoming a culture that is a one way street in lots of ways, and it's a bit worrying. We've got to talk about succession. Yay! Okay, because <laughs> it's so good. Um, you you currently you. It's so funny the way you talk about things because you say, you know, and I, I, I do this, I, I do some work on this show called Succession. And you just said that three times during this interview. It's like the most famous show in the world on the telly now. And also it's not really on now and it's only had two seasons and the third season may or may not be happening and you sometimes say you can talk about it and you can't talk about it and that doesn't really matter. <laughs> but the... It will happen. It's definitely yeah. Happening. Good, good. Well, that's the most you've ever told me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll, let's just dive a little bit deeper into that. Now that you've continued the conversation a bit, they they said they're trying everything they can to do to start filming this side of Christmas. Mm-hmm. Mm. My understanding is that that's what's happening. Yeah. My understanding is that that's what's happening. <laughs> I'm like, please don't get me in trouble with a big company. This HBO. is the most AI you've been like. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um. Yeah. Look. Yeah. It's going to start shooting unless something terrible happens. Okay. Um. Unlike COVID. <laughs> exactly. As long as there's no pandemic, Chris, yes, we're fine. No pandemic, no panic. Um, let's just talk about the makeup of characters. Because we could, I want to talk to you about all the things you've done, but we let's, let's, you've talked about Enron and plays and things sure. like that. So let's talk, we could talk about gaming as well. And you write games, computer games and things like that. You're a big gamer. You love all that stuff. Um, but I think we've only really got to, time to talk about one more thing uh, for the sake of everyone, not least of all yourself and your busy life. But um, succession. So the, the makeup of the characters of success. Yeah, the Roy family, mm-hmm. right, and the band that you've put together. You know, um, the they're like the Eagles, <laughs> yeah. um, the, but their manager also happens to be a band member, i.e., Logan Roy, the dad. Mm-hmm. So, so just just from a brilliant, brilliant, and I can say this about you because you you won't. From a brilliant writer's point of view, from somebody who is right in the middle of it, you are the zeitgeist. You are it. You are oh, just t- just take us through. The main characters, the, the, the Roy family, the immediate Roy family, what their names are and how you would summarise them from a writer's point of view as a dramatic character. Sure. So so the Roy family are a media family. Logan Roy is a figure who runs a huge conglomerate multi-conglomerate that is uh, that controls news television newspapers um and obviously there are a lot of companies like that out there and and, and extend also to oh, you know any number of things they'll buy up online companies and cruises and um massive institutions and other corporations anyway so logan roy is a self-made man and takes a massive amount of pride in that and is also something of a bully um he's ambitious he knows what he wants and he has these children. Um, his firstborn's Connor Roy, who he had in his um, first marriage. And Connor is a little bit of a loner, lives out on a ranch in New Mexico. And 
uh, it, it is a little bit of a comic figure, I suppose, in the show. But he's played by Alan Ruck, who people might remember from Ferris Bueller's Day Off and you know other great films. And he's he's just brilliant. And you're very sympathetic towards him at the same time, weirdly, as he's a sort of buffoon. Um, Connor has a relationship with a high-class cool girl that he pretends isn't a cool girl called Willa, who is his sort of girl, long-term girlfriend who he just pays to have. Um, and then there are the three sort of main children, as in from his from his next marriage, Kendall, Shiv and Roman. And I guess I come from a three-kid family myself. And so there's a dynamic there that I'm really interested in, which is sort of the older son, Kendall, is was sort of believed he was going to inherit the company when dad retired. Dad is choosing not to retire. So there's a massive amount of friction there. And Kendall is kind of just quite a weak guy and, you know, really, really wants to be like his father, but isn't quite and therefore sort of hates his father. Shiv, the daughter, cold, calculating, smart, is married to Tom, who is another slightly idiot figure, but who is also a slightly insane bully. And then you've got Roman who is uh, played wonderfully by Kieran Culkin, who is sort of uh, a sexually messed up swear word machine with pretty good instincts. Um, or I think he's referred to in one season as a lawsuit waiting to happen, which is very much what Roman is. And then in the first episode of the first season, their cousin Greg, who's from a much poorer side of the family, kind of um, turns up and gets ingratiated himself into this family and wants to make money and be important within the company as well. And so he's a little bit more of a everyman character. And Jesse writes some brilliant stuff for him as a sort of gauche, tall, lost um, cousin. So that's basically the shape of, uh, of, of of the main family. And yeah, we just sort of put them through a lot of pain and show how gruesome they are as people. And it's a weird balance between, you know, they are sort of terrible people, most of them. But they are also human beings and they have feelings and you and you sort of want people to care about them a bit as well. And that's always a difficult balance to maintain. So you you have you would have a schizophrenic, you'd have a paranoid schizophrenic, and then you'd have a psychopath. Um from so that, when would we have them? No, <laughs> For what? Clinical psychology. Right, right. Yeah. Um and they all have some of some have more of those traits than the others, as people do in life anyway. Mm. Do you think about them as specific psychological states or do you allow them to, to be different things on different days? As characters, um, gosh, I, I probably start from quite a psychological place. You know, I, I would be, I'd be quite likely to sort of say the narcissism of uh, Logan or of Kendall or the certainly the sociopathy of someone like Logan you know, somebody who is not interested in human feeling at all and maybe doesn't even recognise it that much in themselves, I think does feature. But the show has a lot of different people who write it and Jesse is very much in charge of it and show runs it. And I think Jesse starts from much more of a... He sort of combines real-life politics stuff. So, So Jesse really does like research. He likes to find... He likes to find things in real life that echo a little bit stuff that we're looking at and just be really accurate about them. So we do a lot of looking into large media companies, American politics, how that works, uh, really specifically. 
and that helps you find story. But also Jesse comes from a sitcom background, so he's very interested literally in situation and comedy. So we'll very often start talking about an episode with Jesse talking about what's what's it the one where you know what happens in this episode where does it happen what happens when we're there so the situation of it and what's funny about it or you know when I say funny I don't mean in a Curb the Enthusiasm Seinfeld way I mean very darkly sadly funny which is sort of the the the, the black comedy tone that we try to go for with Succession which is you kind of recognize the horrible truth of it and it makes you snarl if not laugh um so that's where we normally start because that's kind of Jesse's taste and background it seems to work really well but I think I'm often the one that's kind of going I feel that I feel like this character would uh you know psychologically find that very threatening and might behave like this so I I definitely bring that to the table quite early on and is the collective um uh the collective damning that the kids have been blighted with entitlement and lack of adversity is that because that's and the rage within logan is they will never they don't understand what it's taken for me to get here to get my companies here and to get them here but that's not their problem so he knows that as well so he's he's wrestling with that because Mm. he has got a brain and there there are there has to be some empathy and compassion somewhere if for himself if not anybody else so but then there's the um, conflict of him, or maybe the consciousness of him trying to induce that adversity by making their lives tough, but that doesn't work as a playbook. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Logan is simply quite jealous of his own children and resentful of them because he has, yeah, they'll never have the upbringing that he had. And I think lots of us can relate a little bit to that, like you know, it's where you look at what your kids have that you didn't have. There's always that feeling of, God, you'll never really know what that what it was like. And and that's a complicated feeling because you both you love them, but at the same time you can also resent or even come close to hating them. And Logan does that. I think it's also an interesting question. Somebody who is narcissistic, i.e. sort of overly obsessed with them with themselves, will often have children because children can feel like a way of extending yourself but they're actually often the worst person to parent a child because they find it quite difficult to you know imagine someone else's feelings outside of their own and so someone like Logan who's sort of like built a company over many many years and devoted everything to it you know had these children and neglected them in favor of 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 building this other child which is his company which has done really really well that he can control that he can completely control and will control you know to his death and then he sort of expected at a certain age to hand it over to one of his children like a king would or something and he's going hang on no you know the, these children are not adequately prepared for that task but of course the reason they're not adequately prepared for it is that he didn't adequately prepare them for it so there's this awful loop of anger and shame presumably being acted out there that the person who has failed ultimately therefore is him yeah and what we do as viewers the the, the way you hoodwink us as viewers is is like we we've got to make our mind up who's going to win the race and the point is he doesn't really think any of them are worthy of winning the race um but now and again 
you know, in his weaker moments, and we're all judged most in our weaker moments, not our stronger moments, he sort of acquiesces to the fact that one of them might be, and then uh, he has a bit more sleep and he gets up the next day and it's we're back to square one. He is a, yeah, what do we describe him as? Like, capricious. He's a capricious character. You can't quite predict his moves. But, of course, for Logan, like like lots of people, the idea of the idea of him losing his company to a stranger eventually is worse for him I think than one of his kids taking it even if he is kind of disappointed and angry with his kids so he's so I think that's something he bounces between a bit which is he would rather it went to a Roy you know than was sort of like cut up and sold or something terrible but even like that's that. about him isn't it oh of course it is it's all it's all about him yeah mm. he is like the behemoth of the show and of his own life because yeah. he because he blames them for not understanding his suffering uh, and then he blames them for not suffering yeah, and and he's probably not even conscious of any of that. I think if you were to talk to the character Logan Roy, he would find it all incredibly indulgent and and be like, just bring me the paper, bring me the share price. You know, I, I don't want to talk about any of that. And I think that level of repression and emotional coldness is part of what's got him to where he is today. You know, so, you were saying earlier, psychopaths make up a huge not a huge proportion, let me put it the other way. If you look at what roles psychopaths tend to take in life, um, work-wise, you'll find a surprisingly large number of them among CEOs and also a large number of them among surgeons, actually. <laughs> just throw, just that, throw one. that one in there. Just anyone married to a surgeon, <laughs> keep an eye on that. Is this from your research? This is from one of my many bits of research. Okay. It's true. It's, oh, Lucy, it is fascinating. Um I would talk about Karen talking about succession, but I just want to talk about something else before you finish. Sure. So, um, women, women's, <laughs> women's, women. <laughs> women. No, not, I'm not going there. I'm not a fan. I'm going to be yeah. honest. <laughs> you touched on it right at the beginning of our conversation about you said something about women in crime drama. Oh, we're listening to true crime podcasts. Yeah, and 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 you know whether it's literature, whether it's on the telly, it it is a more it is a female more followed thing, isn't it, than a male followed thing, which is what you're alluding to there. I think so. I think that the research does back that up. Um, and it's, yeah, that is fascinating. I think there's some element of feeling in control of the grisly thing, you know, that you think, well, the thing I fear most might be being, you know, attacked or whatever. And I, if I, if I listen to enough about it, I might have control over it and master it in some way. And I'm sure that's a part of it. But I also think there's a sort of lurid fascination which we all kind of have a little bit with really really dark things and I wonder if maybe in life women we don't we don't indulge that so much um publicly or something and and therefore privately we sort of want to read about it I don't know but there definitely is a there definitely is a fascination with it that's specific to women and I, I can't really explain it but I, I have shared it but as I said recently I actually did get quite tired of it so maybe I'm murdered out yeah but also I mean you, you go into it a lot deeper than most people regardless of their gender because you do it for a living what murder well you know the <laughs> well you knew about surgeons for example and psych yeah. psychopathy yes that's true yeah I love yeah I, I didn't know that by the, by the way you yeah I, 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 I like to um you should have just left it. You should have just, that should just be the end. You should have just been like, and surgeons. Okay, everybody, bye. That would have been really good. Um. So, so, okay, just quickly go back to that. So CEO, CEOs and surgeons, Cliff. Cliff. Um, was, uh, if there had been a comma, not a Cliff face, what other 
occupations may come third, fourth, fifth. I cannot remember. Those are the ones that stuck in my mind. Why, why did surges stick in your mind? I mean, CEOs, obviously, because of succession, I would imagine. Well, yeah, CEOs because of succession, but also because I just thought, God, a massive amount of our economy is run by people world. who are psychopaths. And the world is run world. by people who might be or are more likely to be psychopaths. That's going to produce a certain... Um, result and the result is the capitalist economy that we live in so we should maybe pay a little bit of attention to that at some point I think the reason surgeon stuck in my mind is it was one of those things where I was like of course <laughs> like if you are it, you know if you are drawn to wanting to have you know control and and you are relatively unemotionally affected yeah. it's actually a really really good way to channel that because most people might find it very very difficult mm. to cut somebody open but of course what surgeons are doing are doing that is in are doing that for the greater good so that's actually a really really great way to channel that <laughs> feelinglessness so 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 I, I take it back it's not a bad thing if you're married to a surgeon they're actually doing a really really good thing <laughs> so if you are a psychopath you might <laughs> yeah. want to be a surgeon I would say channel things in that direction yeah, because you may not be able to feel that it will be of service to to other human beings because of your lack of empathy. However, from those of us who aren't, let us assure you it would. Well, yeah, we'd be very grateful. Plus, you get all of the glory <laughs> of everyone being like, oh, you're a surgeon. And that's another thing that people often, psychopaths and, or narcissists, which are not the same thing, but that sort of category really, really thrive on, which is to um, have, a, yeah, have a lot of prestige. So that's a, that's a really good solution. <laughs> right. That was brilliant. Um, now, before you go, mm. uh, Lucy, what's the, what's the what's been your the favorite bit of your career so far and what's the favorite thing about your job? What's your favorite thing about your job? Oh. Um I think my favorite thing about my job very specifically is I just love I love getting up when I want. I love the fact, I know, I love that, I mean, I'm really like, it's really simple stuff. I love the fact that I am able to plan my own day a little bit, which is a real lucky privilege. Like I could sort of go, oh gosh, I'm going to do some writing, but I'm not going to do it till this evening. And I can lie in, I could do like, like that. That is a really, really good thing. But on a, on a, on a sort of more serious level, yeah, I, I love the moment where somebody says they they responded to something you've written, not just because of the praise of it, but more because I think I started writing because I was a bit lonely as a kid. And I think it was my way of slightly giving myself other voices and populating myself a little bit. And so when other people respond to something that you've written, it feels like that invitation has been answered. It feels, and that, that could be Billy when I write apart from her and she's like, oh my God, I love this bit. I really can't wait to perform this bit. Or it could be a member of an audience later on who talks to you. But it feels, it feels like something that, <laughs> to be a wanker about it, like was spreading, then becomes sharing. <laughs> you know, what we were talking about earlier, like something I did on my own, yeah. then has somebody receive it. And, that, and, 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 and so the, invita the original sort of invitation is completed. And that is a lovely, lovely feeling. Um, uh, I don't know what my favourite moment of my career is. I mean, I think I was very proud of the last show that I did, A Very Expensive Poison, which was a play at the Old Vic. And there was a moment in that in the tech, which is the technical rehearsal, where you're just trying to work out how the lights work, how the sets move, and you're sat in the dark, and it's just me and the director and the designer staring at the stage. And it was so technically difficult as a show that we were like, this isn't going to work, is it? This isn't going to work. Like, we were, it just felt impossible. And then weirdly, those moments where it feels impossible always feel to me like the most exciting ones because you think, if we could pull this off, it would be 
amazing. And it's that moment I always look back to of sort of like it's 11 p.m. We're trapped in this theatre. We're trying to get this stupid walkway to move across the stage. For some reason, it's the thing's broken and we're trying to fix it. And you're you're there just going, this is crazy what we're trying to do. You know, a thousand people are going to be here in two days to watch this. <laughs> what are we doing? And that sense of mischief and risk actually is where I feel kind of alive, I think. That's a, that's a fantastic answer. Um if people, we do this writing competition for kids, it's called 500 Words. Oh, yeah. And um, and the BBC did it for 10 years and then they decided they didn't want to do it anymore. That was this year. So so we, we, we carried it. Well, we weren't going to carry on, or we were and we weren't, we weren't quite sure. And then the Duchess of Cornwall, um, who's been our, our sort of head judge, head honcho, she's quite a handy one to have, by the way. She can get yeah. you into places. Um, <laughs> she, she gives us venues for our finals. You may have heard of them, such as Windsor Castle and Buckingham Palace. <laughs> um, so she's quite handy. But also, she's, I mean, she, she phoned us years ago and said, you know, I love, I'm, I'm a big champion. She, she wouldn't say that. I'm a big fan of children's literature. What can I do to help? Mm. So she came on board. Um, and then since um, we've party company with the BBC, we've done another one and it was fantastic. And then, Netflix phoned us last week and said, look, we've been thinking about 500 words. And they called us out of nowhere. I don't even know, I don't know how you know how Netflix call you. It's a bit like, who do you complain to at Instagram? Yeah. Right. And somebody here said, Chobis John, who, who is in charge of your booking, who's the best ever at his job. Um, he says that Netflix has phoned up. It's like, how, <laughs> how does Netflix phone? What does Netflix sound like? The concept of Netflix rang. Yeah. And um, and he said, look, they really want to do something with 500 words. And I said, they said, would they said they want to know, would you like to talk about it? And the answer, is, of course, is yes. And I think we've got the meeting next week. Um, now, I'm not I'm not trying to sort of um, uh, what do they call it? press gang you into doing this. But, you know, maybe that would be something to, to, to so something like that, you know, because because when you were writing and I think I think now we I talked to, to Roger Dodge about this yesterday about music, you know, when when the lid is is tightly affixed atop the pressure cooker because of certain a, a certain sort of combination of circumstances especially globally it doesn't happen very often you know 1967 probably you know in america with vietnam and then throughout the world and you know again with segregation equal rights um and um and everything that was about to happen you know on the gay scene and stonewall and all that kind of stuff all that was going on and then obviously uh, the Great War, World War Two, but this doesn't feel dissimilar from people I've talked to who've who've been in both or, or three or four of those. Yeah, because there are people I've who have, have been in both those and this, you know. And we talked to one lady about it actually vicariously to one lady about it who was in the Second World War and is around now, and she said, you know, by the way, because we were all saying, well, it's nothing like the war was, you know, c you know, come on, everybody, you know, suck it up, let's get on with this. And she said, no, 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 don't downplay this because during the war, you know, we were bombed and we didn't know whether the street was going to be there when we came out of the air raid shelters. But if if the pub was still standing, then it was party time. Right. And she said, we don't have that now. This cloud is weird. It's a weird thing. It stopped, it stopped everything. Um, and Roger said in 1963, that's when the swinging 60s exploded. He could literally pinpoint it. It wasn't 62. It wasn't 64. It was the summer of 63. Wow. Bang. But they would percolate. That summer was percolating from 1958, 59 to 63. And if you think about where we are now and what young people who have not been over-informed by their experiences because they've not been here for long enough and maybe have been over-informed by two-dimensional you know uh, experiences via social media etc 
they they are they are in a melting pot like I've never experienced in my lifetime, and you you haven't because we've never had this before. Mm. And so there might be some fantastic writing going on, create you know music. Uh, Kids in bedrooms, stuck in bedrooms, like they haven't been for years, coming up with, with I don't know, amazing stuff that is much will be needed. Yeah. Would you like to get involved in that? Oh yeah, of course, massively. And I think also there's energy behind that that you can even see playing out politically a bit as well. Like whether or not you agree with um, the move on the left in America that really is focused on Bernie Sanders and AOC or here that was focused on Corbyn, even if you leave aside what you think about those people and those policies, you can't deny that there was a hunger and an energy for something to get behind, to believe in and to express. And artistically as well, I think that those things tend to come together, like what you were just describing in the 60s and so on. They do tend to come together. And I think um, that might well be going on. And and also they, they have a much greater understanding of the forms available to them. You know, it's, it's no surprise that it's often the older people who are being fooled by the misinformation online and the younger people who understand how it works. And there might be whole other artistic experiences that will be invented there that that requires writing and things like that and performing still or whatever but that will be somehow technologically challenged channeled in a way that you or i don't necessarily know what that is yet yeah um so I need your advice on the Netflix thing. <laughs> by the way, that's not why I invited you. That's all. You can have it. You... All of that was a precursor to no, this moment. I, I say, by the way, I'm not doing it anymore. Lisa Preble's doing it. You may have heard of her. <laughs> I think she works in the same business as you do. Is there anything on your, on your radar now, your your personal radar, that you might you might write about that you? Yeah, I'm. I'm thinking at the moment about some stuff. I'm thinking a lot about what happens next with form. By which I mean, like, is there a way that video games can meet? Um, television and film and the emotional ambition of those art forms more. They, they've been quite separate for a very long time as industries. And I can't, I, I really would love to find a way to bring them together a little bit more. <laughs> not, not, not me in a sort of like, you know, hand-holding way. I mean, I mean more that video games are incredibly successful, widely consumed, particularly by the young. Mm. And they have the capacity to be artistically very profound in a way that sometimes I don't think they've achieved yet. And film and television have, you know, become, as you were saying, like there's a golden age of television going at the moment. There's a lot of emotional sophistication. There's a lot of ambition. But it feels like technologically it's still just sitting down and staring at something in the same way that we've been doing for decades. And I kind of feel like there's a next step to take. And I'm wondering about, you know, what that is exactly. Um, and I'm also interested in writing a horror movie at some point, but that's, that might just be because every day feels a little bit like a horror movie at the moment. <laughs> All right, Lucy, thanks for coming. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me, Chris. Oh, you're very welcome. Lucy Preble, everyone. <laughs> How good was she? How talented is she? How lucky are we to have her writing amazing plays, computer game narratives, by the way, as well as amazing shows on telly in the golden age of television. The wonderful Lucy Preble. This has been How to Wow. And today's show has been brought to you by Athletic Greens. Go to athleticgreens.com slash howtowow now. And if you do input the How to Wow bit of that URL, you'll get a free year supply of vitamin D and five travel-free sachets today. That's their special offer to you via us. Athleticgreens.com slash howtowow. Have a great one. See you next time. Ta-da.